Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. All right, folks. Welcome in to Pickaxe and Roll, brought to you by our good friends over at Superbook Sports. I'm your host, Ryan Blackburn at NBA Blackburn on Twitter. Part of the Mile High Sports Podcast Network, and I'm excited to have a guest on for a first time in a little bit here. Excited to be able to chat with somebody who I really enjoy. His content is always great over at Bleacher Report. Does the great Hardwood Knox podcast. A variety of hosts and a, a mixing and matching of Bleacher Report folks with Grant Hughes hops on there, Adam Fromo hops on there, Andy Bailey hops on there, but always great to talk to the fantastic Dan Pavali over at Bleacher Report. Dan, what's happening, man? Uh, nothing's going on over here. Thank you so much for having me, Ryan. How are you doing? I'm good. I'm good. I heard from you right before you hopped on that the basketball just wasn't great tonight in terms of the national conversation, in terms of all the the good content out there. So hopefully we could we could spice it up on, on, on this little podcast and, and have a much better time just talking about the MVP race, which I'm sure will be a very, uh, really easy conversation for everybody. Nobody's going to have strong takes. Nobody's going to say anything racist. I think this is going to be perfect for uh, us to really break down. Uh, really quick, before before we hop into it in, in full earnest here, uh, what do you make of how polarizing and, and strong emotional takes have really taken over the discourse for this thing? And and why do, why do you think it's gotten to that point? Man, there are so many reasons. I recorded like this incoherent diatribe on why we care about the NBA MVP award so much, because when you look at other leagues, uh, they don't ascribe as much value to, to that award. And I think there are a bunch of different reasons. Um, one of which is the NBA, the stars are so front facing, they're not wearing helmets, they're not wearing hats. So they're very recognizable and fans become more attached to them. I think this race in particular we're talking about Jokic potentially winning a third straight MVP award Embiid finishing as a runner up for the third straight year. And so that's just inherently pit these two guys against one another year after year after year. And so that's just going to compound all the emotion that's there. And so I think those are probably just the two driving forces that were conditioned to, to care about the MVP award so much to begin with. And then the fact that we're just here, for a third year in a row, kind of like in the same spot that we've always been where it's Giannis and Bede and Jokic. Um, that's when you're having not the same conversation, but when you're dealing with the same guys that consistently um, it's going to ratchet up the responses, especially if it looks like the end result isn't necessarily going to change. Like it's been Jokic the past two years. And for a while it looked like it was going to be Jokic again this year. And now it feels like over these last, you know, nine, 10 games that it still really is up in the air between definitely a beat and Jokic, but I wouldn't even count out Giannis at this point either. Yeah, it certainly feels like all of these conversations have been going on over and over and over again. And, and when you start spinning those wheels, a lot of folks are, I think, showing their, showing their ass in this conversation when rather than bringing natural, like 
good, honest conversation into it. It does feel like things have really spiraled out of control, but that does come with being as, as emotional the conversation as it is. And I think a lot of people want this for Joel Embiid. A lot of people want this for Giannis Antetokounmpo. And when so much of NBA discourse, I think, is built on legacy. And, and I think LeBron is, is at the forefront of this, where he's, he's probably the guy who has cared as much about his legacy over the course of these last five, six, seven, eight years as really any superstar. I think that has sort of kind of spiraled it into a place where it, it's not really healthy. And rather than playing, rather than talking about the basketball, rather than talking about all of that stuff, it's mostly about, Hey, who is better than who long-term? What, what, what do you need for your checklist in order to be a hall of famer or in order to be an inner circle hall of famer or things like that. So uh, for, for Bucks fans, it's about Giannis getting his third MVP. For Embiid fans, it is, and, and Sixers fans, it's about Embiid getting onto that same track that Jokic is currently on right now. And for Nuggets fans, having a three-time MVP, all three in a row, back-to-back-to-back, it's, it's historical. And so I think Nuggets fans are the, the most satiated in general right now with the conversation about their own guy, because I think Nuggets fans know that the championship matters that much more to not just not just to them, but to Nicola and, and to the Nuggets as well. But it does feel like because of all of these factors, it has it's creeped into into such a horrible discussion that it's it's hard to have an honest discussion about it. You know? Yeah, and I think a lot of it too is the way that the NBA has really ingratiated itself to the social media discussion, where it promotes the sort of snackable, digestible, oversimplified debates that you outlined, where it comes down to legacy, and so you're inherently going to see anything that's really NBA related spread across social media, maybe faster than you would see with NFL, MLB, NHL, which is not to say the NBA is more popular than we know it's not more popular than the NFL, but the way that it's promoted itself on social media. And so a lot of these debate shows, podcasts, conversations are built around putting out a discussion that's going to immediately evoke this like really intense reaction. And that's just going to spread because I think we're all conditioned to even when we don't agree with something, even when we know it's performative, we're all just going to dunk on it or give our takes anyway. And so that just sort of creates this feedback loop where um, if you're so plugged into social media, you're seeing it constantly talk about, and it's getting more and more contentious, uh, you know, not just each and every year, but like each and every week at this point with regard to this specific race. And, and I think, we all contribute to it too. Like it is what gets clicks. It is what gets uh, all of this entire conversation. But I, I, what I like about your MVP ladder most of all is I, I do think that you give every single candidate within that realm as much of your words as you possibly can to talk about the objective nature of it rather than the subjective nature of it. And it's always been that way with you. It's always been that way with a lot of the folks over at Bleacher now. And I really do appreciate your guys' coverage on it. Uh, Real quick about the MVP ladder, what what caused you to do it this year? I think it's a little bit different than it was in previous years, correct? Yeah, uh, we've been more consistent with it this year. I think um, in part because I was willing to do it more consistently this year. It gets it gets pretty boring having to not boring, but the challenge of not saying the same thing every single time when you're putting this thing out, like every two weeks or sometimes once a month if we if we take a break, and so. Um, Doing it this year this way, I think it was because we I knew Jokic was going to go for the third award. I knew Embiid would be right there. We saw what was going on at the beginning of the year where Tatum won that MVP straw poll, but like Kevin Durant was sort of right there. 
And so the race was just more fascinating. And so when I was approached by it, I, I like immediately jumped on it. And so injuries have definitely winnowed down the field to where there's, I mean, there's a time where Luka Doncic, I think was sitting at the top of our, uh, our ladder for a little bit. And so that's made it more entertaining this year, at least at the beginning where it felt like there was a lot more um, shifts towards the top of it. And there've been less of that over the past couple months until the most recent one. Um, and I think, again, that was just the nature of the MVP field. We're down to three candidates now, but like there was a time where it was just like, maybe these weren't even like, I, I would have to go back, but I don't even know if there was probably a time where Embiid, Jokic and um, Giannis weren't even in the top three. Like I probably had three other top three guys in there. And so this race has been really interesting from that perspective to see how much it shifted from like the first, first month of the season to, you know, about two, two and a half weeks to play three weeks in the regular season now. Well, let's talk about these three guys now. It does sort of feel like, as as you said, that it's been narrowed to a three-player race. Tatum, I think, with, with some of the down performances that he's had lately, has really played himself out of it, even like just, just from a consistency standpoint. And I think with the, the Celtics kind of also playing themselves out of the top spot in the conference, you, you can't really make the best player on the best team argument with them anymore. Like, it, it just doesn't really exist. So... I think he he is just a a leader of the engine there, but not necessarily uh, to the degree that somebody like a Jokic is or an Embiid is or Giannis is for for each of those teams. And I think that's probably why he's fallen off. Obviously, Luca has fallen off too. Uh, when you had to do the latter this week, and and I implore people to go. Uh, read that article, and because it has Embiid at the top. And, and I think that reflects a lot of what uh, people really are starting to think now about this MVP race. When you had to parse between those three, what were some of the distinguishing criteria that you used this time around that maybe changed, uh, given that it's it has changed? It was, I think, me specifically, I was using more of the split hair arguments where it's like going more into a lot of the the eye test stuff. Now we know the numbers, we know what um, Jokic is doing to the catch all metrics. He's breaking them again. Um, we know what Giannis's counting stats are going to be or what, how good his rim protection is. And so a lot of it is based off now what I've seen lately because the margins have become thinner. I think in large part, part there was, and I think I wrote this probably a month ago. It felt like there was no way Jokic could lose. Um, it felt like Philly might've been spinning its wheels. And I think Giannis was out at the time. Um, but Embiid just really came alive and to do what he's done over the course of a schedule that's been pretty difficult for the Sixers of late. And I think the bigger thing, um, and it, it actually all three of them fell into this umbrella. Giannis has not looked the same defensively to me over the past couple of weeks. Um, and then looking at the Nuggets specifically, it's felt like and this could have been the case all season. You've definitely watched them more than I have. But it just felt like there was more of a, I wouldn't call it a switch being flipped, but there's a noticeable difference to me to how Jokic is defending for large parts of the games and then like later on in the games. And I think it's contributed to some of the points where Denver is either playing from behind or not playing with as big of a lead as they should that the bench is eventually going to relinquish. And then you have Embiid where currently the Sixers defense is sputtering its wheels again, and they're just so weird that they're not a better defensive rebounding team. Their transition defense can be awful at points. Embiid contributes to that, but he's also can flip his own switch where like he just looks like the defensive player of the millennia. And I think even when he's chosen his spots, um, he's just had more erasure to his defensive game over the past month or so and to do that on top of what he's doing offensively to where not only is he dominant but the teams that are supposed to have solves for him Miami 
Boston, Milwaukee, they just don't anymore, no matter who they're throwing at him. And he deserves so much credit for that. And I think I saw, and I have seen that people think like, when they look at sometimes how Jokic is playing with his offense, they're always playing with his defense. There's a school of thought that he's trying to help the team discover more about itself for the playoffs, specifically on offense, or if he's conserving his energy or the way he's going to defend more aggressively for later on in the games. That's fine if you want to credit him for that. But then we can't also, I've seen people detract from Embiid for looking like he takes plays off on defense. You can't, it, can't, it has to work both ways here. And so the stuff I've seen at least over the past month, month and a half, um, I've grown more concerned about the Nuggets and Jokic's overall defense. And I've just been more enamored with the play that Joel Embiid has turned in. And this is all with the caveat that even when the Nuggets were kind of crapping it up uh, out of the all-star break, they're still winning the minutes that Nicole Jokic is on the court. Um, the defense is still better with him on the floor, like during that, this two and five stretch over the seven games and his numbers are still just absolutely absurd. And so there's, I, I could easily see the next MVP ladder being different. I could see myself picking Nicole Jokic at the end of the year. I could even see myself honestly picking Giannis at the end of the year. It feels like, I don't know if this will be reflected in the actual votes, but for people who want to have an honest discussion about this, and I'm not saying that my discussion is more genuine or just higher end than everyone else's, but for people that really want to get into it, it feels like this could be or should be one of the all-time finishes that we've seen to an MVP race when you're looking at the top of it. Well, one of the reasons for that is because of the the schedule. The schedule actually, I think, plays into this where you have these three kind of this round robin between these guys in this next couple of weeks where the Bucks are coming to Denver on Saturday. The Sixers are coming to Denver on Monday. And then the Bucks and Sixers play each other, I think, on April 2nd. So these matchups are going to mean something within the greater scheme of things. And if it is basically a tie, it wouldn't surprise me if looking at those individual matchups between these between these three guys, it wouldn't surprise me if those really tell a tale. And we saw it on January 28th where Embiid basically kicked Jokic's butt for much of that game and, and like just, just put up 47 and whatever. And so when you have matchups like that and you have definitive performances like that where Denver had been winning that game and then they take Embiid off of Jokic, which doesn't really get enough discussion, I don't think, but... Uh, they they took Embiid off of Jokic and it completely flipped the game. And because of the defensive schemes that those guys were playing and because Denver couldn't really stop the Sixers and Embiid, it was a pretty definitive mark in the MVP race at that time. So it wouldn't surprise me if something like that happens again over the course of these next couple of weeks. And we are talking about a completely different ladder, whether it is your ladder changing from Jokic to Embiid to Giannis, or if it's the kind of the national perspective, maybe maybe Giannis gets a little bit more credit in general if, if he shows up in each of those last two matchups. Yeah, and I think it's perfectly fair to even boil down a race this close to those singular matchups. And to me, it probably makes more sense than using, you know, past playoff results or what you're expecting in the playoffs as logic for a regular season award and like if it's the thinnest of margins and you're just looking for a way to break a tie and you don't have any other evidence all these teams split their season series like one to one and one to one and like you're just looking for something and you want to factor in the playoffs fine but it's a regular season award it is super close all these guys are just going to play each other again assuming everyone is healthy and so it very much feels like those matchups could just be the determining factor in this race and especially just I circle the one because I do ultimately think that um, because of how much the Bucks have flown under the radar 
uh, where, yeah, they just have the best record in basketball, but we just kind of shrug it off. It doesn't matter that they've missed Chris Middleton for, for so much time or that even Drew Holiday missed some time or that Bobby Portis has missed so much time. They have the best record in basketball, whatever. Uh, it does feel like it's going to come down to Joel Embiid and Nicole Jokic again. And so I just circle that game. It's just like, are we going to watch the MVP race unfold right there? There might be enough of the season left to where we won't, but I could very much see that game being the one where the betting odds shift or remain the same just once and for all. And like, that's the last time we ever heard of like the debate of who's actually going to be finishing at the top. Does it matter to you that at the previous Sixers bucks matchup, the clear best player on the court was James Harden. Uh, I look, that's going to factor into some people's logic and I can't fault them too much for it. But if you look at these three guys, James, uh, excuse me, Joel Embiid has the best, second best teammate that's not an insult to chris middleton or drew holiday it's not even close when you're comparing james harden to jamal murray at this point hey now so people will take that away like players they won't cannibalize mvp votes just because no one's going to vote james harden for mvp this year but there's a difference when you have like this clear-cut all nba level player um who probably won't even make all nba because i feel like harden sees his phone of the radar i do think people could use that as an impetus for well you know joel Embiid is not the and like I bring this back to Tatum in a sense where it's one of his biggest problems with the MVP discussion, aside from just the, the wonkiness on his uh, off the dribble jumper this year is that yes, he's the leading scorer on his team, but what else is he the driving force of? He's not going to be like their go-to defender. He's improved a lot as a playmaker, but he's not that guy. And so you look at a Jokic in Denver where he's very much the heart and soul. Yeah. We don't necessarily recognize him as a scorer, but like he is the heart and soul of the scoring machine and the passing machine. And then Joel Embiid, the defense, and then the scoring. But he also doesn't have to create for himself as much as Jokic does when you break down those splits. And so there is, in any given night, it is, to me, it is far more likely that Joel Embiid is not the best player on his team than it's ever going to be that Jokic is not the best player on his team. And so that's another element that you have to factor into this. It's just Joel currently, to me, has put together a stretch where that just really hasn't even happened, save for maybe like once or twice over the past couple of months. Yeah, there's no doubt. Like I I said previously on this podcast and I've said it multiple times over the course of these last couple of weeks that I think that Embiid's going to win. I think that he's going to show up in that game in Denver and, and really try to send a message. And I don't know what Jokic is going to look like in that game. I don't know what he's going to try to do in that game, but the fact is, is I think Embiid really wants this. I think he really cares about it, and and he's going to go for it, and that's great. Good for him. Uh, he does deserve to be credited in a lot of the same ways, but with it is going to come a lot of controversy too. And if they if they flutter out of the second round again, then it's going to feel pretty interesting uh, having having that slander go the other the other direction at that point. That's been interesting to not to see it. The the playoff narratives are, are just so weird because when you put their head to head numbers, see, it's just not even close. Like Jokic has had the better playoff numbers than Joel Embiid. And we talk about the Nuggets. I'm a big believer of the Nuggets defense does need to prove in the but we saw this huge stretch this year where they were like eighth in points allowed per possession. We're gonna talk about it. <laughs> and they and close they were my title pick. I've mentioned this on my podcast plenty of times. Nuggets fans don't seem to care, they get mad at me. I still have the element of I need to see their defense do it in the playoffs, but I also we also recognize the last time they were fully healthy. I know it was the bubble, but they went to the Western Conference Finals, and like Joel Embiid doesn't have like this demonstratively better playoff track record than Jokic, and yet Jokic's 
playoff track record is used to discredit him in arguments against Embiid, where if you were going to do that, it really probably should be Giannis. Like, it, I don't know why you'd be using it in the context of Embiid. And so that's been fascinating. And you're absolutely right that if he does win the MVP award and we see the Sixers get trucked in the, the second round, or look, even the first round, depending on how the matchups play out, like if they wind up facing the Heat or something in round one, which is still possible, or even the Knicks, like that's not necessarily a matchup that they're guaranteed to win. And people don't remember matchups is the other thing. Like they don't remember the context of these series. They look back and circle, oh, yeah, Jokic lost in the first round. Never mind that he was just missing the second and third best players on his team was going up against the eventual champion. It's just, no, that's that's when Jokic lost. And so, like, people don't remember the context of that. And so it could it could maybe be a seven-game epic um, without James Harden. Maybe he injures his hamstring or James Harden is shooting, like, one for 17 across the entire entire series. But people nice. are just going to remember, like, the, the actual moment when you were eliminated. It's, oh, it was the first round or it was the second round. So, um yeah, I think, and look, Jokic has won two in a row, and so I absolutely think it's fair to say that even before he won his first MVP, I think it would have been fair to say that he doesn't really care about this stuff. That's not the demeanor that he's ever given off. But certainly now, it does seem like, um, I don't know, I feel like calling what the Nuggets have done a form of self-discovery is probably too flattering for what they've been going through lately. That being said, uh, I do think it's believable in the sense that, yeah, of course Joel Embiid wants this more like he's how many times has he finished runner up and he hasn't won the award yet he should absolutely want it more than Jokic does so we'll see how it boils down but great discussion on that where I, I think that this is going to shift uh, or it may not and, and maybe maybe Embiid just continues to go off and in those matchups just really hammers on that point that, that he should be the guy but either way should be very interesting tell you what let's take a break when we come back, we are going to discuss the Denver Nuggets defense. Uh, lo and behold, like we've got we've got some takes there for sure. But first, this podcast, as you know it, everybody, it's brought to you by our good friends over at Superbook. You don't need to find a pot of gold to strike it rich this March for March Madness. Instead, you can win money on your tournament wagers with Superbook Sports. Superbook features the best team of odds makers in the business, so they're the safe bet when it comes to sports gambling. You have a direct line to their experienced staff behind the counter in Las Vegas. They also have one of the most extensive betting menus around. So no matter what you want to wager on the coming tournament line, Superbook is sure to have it. Download the Superbook Sports app right now and start winning today. Visit Superbook.com for terms and conditions. Gambling problem call 1-800-522-4700. We'll be right back and pick and roll. Pickaxe and Roll, Ryan Blackman here with Dan Favalli of Bleacher Report, who does the Hardwood Knox podcast. Nuggets fans, make sure to check that out. They give a lot of honest discussion about the Nuggets, and, and I do really love the interactions that you have with my guy Miroslav over there. He's always a fantastic contributor. I'm sure Connor and CT are over there as well. So make sure to go check out Hardwood Knox. They do a great job, especially with the numbers aspects of things. But not too deep in the numbers. You, you you still have the eye test narrative that you can that you can pull out every now and then and, and join like uh, just about every single debate show that it seems to be doing it right now. But either way, uh, let's now discuss a, a very nuanced topic, the Denver Nuggets defense right now. Uh, I've got some numbers for you, Dan. Are you ready for the numbers? 
I am ready. Hit me. All right. Cleaning the glass has the Nuggets as a 114.9 defensive rating, which ranks 18th. The range from 11 to 18 is all in the 114s. So it is not like Denver is so far like removed from that that they couldn't, again, rise up to be above the 15th kind of cutoff line. But it does sort of seem like Denver is trending in the wrong direction where you think you have to be an elite defense in order to win a title. I think the only there's, there's only been one time when a team has been below 11th in defensive rating in NBA history and, and actually won a title. The Nuggets are probably not going to be 11th. They're probably not going to be top 10. They never have really had that defensive mentality before. And I'm not surprised that they are at this low point where they were even worse before, at least from a a ranking standpoint. But there was a stretch during the middle of the season. If you look at the stretch in the middle there, defensive rating from December 8th to the All-Star break, which was 35 games, the largest sample size of these And they were seventh, seventh in defensive rating. They were 27th before that and 23rd since the all-star break. They've been 23rd and it hasn't looked great. It really hasn't. And and I'd I'd be the first one to admit that you're right. That Jokic, his defense has not reached the level that I think should be reached at at this point of the season. But uh, again, Denver, they, they clinched, they clinched their seating. They are not, not really like they're still working on it, but it's basically, it's basically done as long as they don't screw around any more than they already have to. And as long as they uh, win basically five more games and they'll be in. However, I'm curious to hear your thoughts on this from a defensive rating perspective. Which of those numbers do you care about the most? Is it the 27th, the seventh or the 23rd? Obviously, the the seventh is the largest sample size there, but it is in the middle of the season and may not be indicative of what they will be in the playoffs. I actually do read more or value that sample size more just because it is larger. And I think it represents, even when you start to dig into the details and you see, okay, like they did get lucky on opponent three-point shooting during that stretch. I do do think it represents their ceiling um, and what still is, their ceiling when you look at the, you know, when you have their top six guys and the different lineup combinations that you can run, where mixing Bruce Brown in and out like that looks like a team where you can have, if you want to three that I would call net positive defenders on the court at all times around Jokic. And then one of Porter or Murray, if that's the route that you actually want to go. Um, I also look at during that stretch and there's an element of randomness and small sample size theater here to what they were doing in crunch time. But if you actually go back and watch those games, I'm not going to credit them a ton with uh, how poorly opponents were shooting um, from three, but there's definitely like a different level of aggression and just execution when you're looking at the speed at, at which they're able to process um, and guard defensively when it matters most. And that's a lot of it. Some, a lot of it's statistical, but a lot of it is just does feel anecdotal where if they are able to hit that gear when it matters most, like that's what you want to trust for the playoffs when you're going to be in nothing but high leverage moments. And if you're wondering whether they can extend that over a longer period of time to where, well, well, they're not just playing like that in the fourth quarter in the final few minutes of a close game, you look to that stretch um, from early December through the all-star break, where it was almost half the season where they were a top 10 defensive team. And even if you try and adjust for luck there a little bit, 
Um, that's the meat and potatoes of the season where so many teams are still competing for something. And even now, like you're dealing with playoff seating, but like we have less of an idea during that stretch of what, you know, the top six teams in each conference are going to look like. And so I don't know if you can say it's harder. You'd have to go back and look at the, you know, the actual schedule that they, they went through there, but I'm always going to default towards the largest sample. And the fact that this is happening to Denver towards the end of the season. And also when they were, you know, quite frankly, running out some pretty inexplicable lineups following the the trade deadline um, until recently, I think you can at least say, no, do I think that they're a perfect defense? Do I think that they're going to be one of the best playoff defenses? Absolutely not. But I, I look at how poor they were to start the year for those few games, but how poor they've been now mostly. And it does feel like um, that's not necessarily their normal. The answer, this is a terrible, it's a cop-out, but it lies somewhere in between, but that's like the ideal outcome is you would rather be like, I, I think they're better the way to put it is, than where they are now, which is 18. I feel like that's sort of been deflated by um, this most, like you said, you mentioned how close the numbers are when you're looking at 18, like through some of the, the um, early top 10 defenses, but also it just feels like they were so consistent for so long, but they've kind of, we've seen this, the floor fall out beneath them. And there's been a, like a more of a rock bottom here. It feels like that, standing is deflated a little bit more in the wrong direction. And so I would think that this is something to me more like when you look at the top of their roster, like the 13th, 14th best defense in the NBA. And I do think, again, we're talking about numbers where the differences are so small, but I do think that ultimately matters when you're talking about playoff basketball, hovering around the bottom 10 to me is a bigger difference than like, Oh, you're closer to top 12. Yeah. So it's interesting. Last year, Denver was basically average. When it came to defensive rating, they're about like 16th, I think. And it couldn't really translate to the playoffs. They they had too many bad defenders on their roster. But I do think that a lot of those defenders were giving a higher level of effort because they didn't have as much flexibility in, in what they could do from night to night where you don't have a Jamal Murray, you don't have Michael Porter, and everybody else has to step up on the defensive end just as much as they do on the offensive end. And I think the level of effort for Denver – was more consistently higher last year for a lower baseline than what it is right now, where they really put together a high effort level 35 game stretch. And uh, the reason why I picked that stretch was they had the number one point differential in the league kind of going away during that stretch. I think Cleveland was second at 6.1. Denver was first at 7.4. So they have been playing, they were playing really well during that stretch. But I want to go back to your point about the weird lineups that they played right after the trade deadline. Can you expand on that a little bit in terms of what you were seeing just from the outside, like different combinations that you liked or didn't like and, and kind of how that affects the picture. Lineups that did not like were basically any three guard combination that featured Reggie Jackson just did not Mm. feel like a, a, a good move there. And I know they got away from that recently. I don't understand why it took so long to get Christian Brown back in the rotation either. And a sticking point for me was also that I know backup five was a need, but it was interesting that they skewed so far towards offense in their search for a backup five to a point where I think Thomas Bryant has had two DMPs since he's been in Denver and is averaging something like 11.7 minutes per game. And so that looks like he's had some really nice moments there. And you, again, you don't need too much of a backup five when you have Jokic, but like I didn't understand the the logic there. And then some of the front courts, that involve Jeff green. Like I would rather see them downsize and be like, Hey, let's go Jeff green and Aaron Gordon just to 
a boatload up front. And so part of me felt like they also, they were experimenting, but they were, Michael Malone was experimenting in the wrong direction is what it felt like. And then there was that, I talked about this with Miroslav and he had, you know, I don't, I'm not covering the team enough to get into, Oh, does Michael Malone just not trust Michael Porter jr. But I guess that seems like a narrative uh, in Denver or something to cover is like, Oh, just kind of weird that Michael Porter jr's minutes can be so all over the place. And Miroslav was telling me that a lot of people just think that he doesn't trust Michael Porter jr. in higher leverage moments, or maybe trust his defense or trust his offense enough to offset some of his defense. Uh, and so I just, I, again, I understand there's value in going through this then and now and trying to figure out your depth or your rotation now prior to the postseason. But it's also something I would have liked to have seen them been more aggressive experimenting with before the trade deadline when you still, in theory, had an opportunity to kind of address what are your biggest shortcomings. But it felt like we kind of knew what their biggest shortcomings were going to be anyway, and they didn't really – I know they were limited in what they could actually do with the trade deadline, but they didn't, they, they still just skewed the opposite direction. And so I found that morbidly fascinating might be the best way to phrase it. Yeah. We, we thought that Thomas would provide a little bit more offense even than he has. And, and the fact that the offense hasn't really translated to anything helpful, like he's had multiple, like I think one of the last games that he played in, they had like an offensive rating of about 50 while he was out there on the court. And that's tough that's a tough way to, to survive in the NBA. And especially now where so much of those minutes without Jokic, they really matter. And then you want to put in, you want to put those guys into a good position to succeed. Uh, but it's really hard when the backup that you get for your offense, isn't really delivering on the offensive end. So it's something that I don't think that they really foresaw. They were hoping to get at least a little bit of an advantage during the regular season. I don't think that Thomas Bryant was ever really a, a playoff caliber addition, but not having Zeke Naji. He just came back this last game, looked pretty decent on, on defensive end, switching up and down and doing all those things. That would be pretty helpful. But uh, in general, uh, the numbers with Nikola Jokic and without Nikola Jokic, obviously those are, I, I think, affected by having KCP and Aaron Gordon and Bruce Brown and guys like that. But he also plays with Jamal Murray, who hasn't had a great defensive season. He also plays with Michael Porter Jr., who has had a better defensive season than I think a lot of people give him credit for. But still can be a little bit spacey at times. So uh, the numbers are the numbers. And, and with Jokic out there, they are competent on the defensive end. And with them not out there, they are horrible. And I think when you're talking about playoff fixes, then that's got to be the thing that Denver addresses the most, is making sure that they don't hemorrhage points when Jokic is off the floor, because it's already going to be hard enough to defend when he's out there. Yeah. And I mean, you mentioned the Zeke Naji absence, which was big, but his all like, that's been like another oddity is like, I remember them trumpeting him coming into the, the regular season about how much of a leap he made. And then he began the regular season, like out of the rotation. And so I can never quite sense how Michael Malone is feeling about anybody outside of the top six players on this roster. It's just something I've never been able this season, been able to get uh, even a semi firm hold on. So I think, I think the rotation heading into the playoffs will be something akin to uh, the five starters, Jokic, Murray, Porter, Gordon, KCP. Those guys will be out there. And then Murray will come off the court. And I think Aaron Gordon will come off the court relatively sooner. And then they will stagger Aaron Gordon at the five in a lot of those minutes. And they'll stagger Jamal Murray at the five next, or not the five, about at the one for the second unit and kind of pitching up those second units a little bit better alongside Bruce Brown, Christian Brown, and one of Vlako Chanchar or Zeke Nashi, probably. Maybe Jeff Green uh, also, but 
you're probably going to an eight-man rotation. That that would be my expectation. That would be my guess. Maybe they start with nine at, at the in a game one or a game two, but they'll ultimately cut that down if they feel like it's bad. And and I like that group when it comes to defense. I, I think that reducing the number of bad defenders in your rotation is obviously going to be the best way to maximize the Nuggets rotation specifically around Jokic, where you have to have guys that you can mix and match and do a lot of things. But it does feel to me like Denver can raise another level when their effort is sky high and they're, they're doing everything in their power to win certain games. I don't think they're doing that right now. And I think that has really affected kind of the national conversation when it comes to Denver's defensive capacity. Yeah, I think that would be fair to say. And uh, I mean, like the three guys you outlined as Gordon, um, Bruce Brown and Christian Brown, that would be huge, like in terms of just defensive versatility and effectiveness to use during the non-Jokic minutes. I think the offense could be up and down there. But also if you're playing Brown with, you know, really Jamal Murray or even if it's Michael Porter Jr. in that scenario and something, you know, him not hitting his threes right now is tough because then he becomes more valuable if he's on the ball. Like those lineups do afford him the ability to do that a little bit more. And so I do think that that would be the way to go. And I would expect them to shorten their rotation as well. And to Michael Malone's defense, he is limited though. When you look at this team, it's like part of it's like you have no wings. So why did it take Christian Brown so long to just be in the rotation, but then it's also um, right. You don't really have it. It's Chanchar and Brown. And like, that's kind of it. Like Bruce Brown is on the smaller end for that. And I think they're finding, he was my, one of my favorite signings of the off season. I still think he's been really good for them, but I think Denver found like, this is not like the one-on-one guy like that. You're who's going to be the solve in that regard. So um, I do like the, the three man combo that you outlined though, where it's the two Browns and, uh, and Aaron Gordon feels like that's a good way to buy, um, really solid defensive minutes and limit the hemorrhaging of points uh, during the stretches that Jokic is going to be off the floor. And look, I'm not saying it gets easier in the postseason, but at least the stretches you need to survive without Jokic do, in theory, get smaller during the postseason just because he's going to play even more than he already has. He, more than just about anybody in the league, has to avoid foul trouble for that reason, uh, just because you want him to be out there on the court to orchestrate the offense because obviously – everything that Denver does offensively surrounds him. And honestly, everything that Denver does defensively surrounds him too. Like they have other great pieces uh, that, that they do, but he is at the anchor of everything and in, in terms of what he can and can't do. So he's going to have to be the guy and he's going to have to step up. And I think he will, but it, it, does, it is pretty clear that especially over the post all-star break schedule that he has regressed from a defensive standpoint. And I think it has been purposeful. I don't think it, I think it's more apathetic than it is anything. Yeah. I mean, I I think that's, that's totally fair. And look, his, his, like what makes him also just, I feel like we don't, I guess nationally we undersell as part of their defense is their ability to actually get their defense set because their offense is so good. And like before this whole, you know, decline uh, after the all-star break like they were so good at limiting opponent opportunities in transition and i don't even think that it's been astronomical during this stretch of um when looking at the frequency their opponents are getting out in transition uh it hasn't been just absurd yeah it hasn't lately they're still second in the frequency with which opponents get out in transition and so that's an under he's a part of that like they've been a team that i think you could argue is like being outside the top 10 of defensive rebounding is just like inherently weird, but I guess you look at the other players on this roster and all right, it makes sense, but that's a big part of 
um, what they're able to do is their offense is so good. If you're able to get your defense set, you at least give yourself a fighting chance. And I do think that's why if you go through like their top lineups, they're all like, even for the season after they're really, really above average defensively to bordering on elite. When you look at their, their defensive ratings, I don't know if that means that they're playoff proof, but I do think it represents a ceiling of, okay, this team at full strength is not one of the, you know, seven to 10 worst defensive teams in the league. And maybe not even a ceiling. Maybe it's just that they have a higher floor <laughs> and like a couple of over the course of these last couple of years, they haven't had the floor to be able to get through some of those awful matchups. And, and now they can at least be competent in those and they don't necessarily have to be great. But I, I do think that with the, with the offense, the way that it is, you're asking for average on the defensive end. You're not asking for spectacular and you're asking for the average to hold up. And, and I think it will, but there's at least concern. And I, and I understand that concern for sure. So tell you what, let's take another break. When we come back, we are going to hit on title race tiers in the Western conference. I think that should be a fun conversation. We'll be right back. We're back. Pickaxe and roll. Ryan Blackburn here, joined by Dan Favalli over at Bleacher Report. Make sure to go check out all of his work. Make sure to go check out the Hardwood Knox podcast as well. Uh, guys do fantastic work. Uh, let's go to the Western Conference title race. This is one where uh, you've heard a lot of national conversation, heard a lot of people asking, hey, who's actually going to come out of the West? Can you really trust Denver with where their defense is at? Phoenix, they haven't had anybody play. You're really going to go after the Kings. John Morant is just coming back to the Memphis Grizzlies. Are you really going to trust them? The Warriors, the Warriors have been average the entire year. They have not been good. They have been average. It's pretty crazy to see. Uh, but there's there's a lot to take in with the title race. So I, I figured I would share with you some of my tiers that, that I currently have. And, and I've got four different tiers Four Western Conference teams. I, I took out the Blazers. I took out the the Rockets and the Spurs. So Dame don't took out the Blazers too. Teams. I don't know if you saw that. So there you go. Say it again. Dame took out the Blazers too. I don't know if you saw that. Where he was just he. I I can't get the Blazers. They just wasted the best season of his career. Just so he was just basically like, as you could see, we're not going to make the playoffs. He's like, we're we're out of tenth. We've lost six in a row, whatever it is. And to just hear him say that was just very sobering and sad. But Shit. I digress. I mean, that's crazy. It's a, it's not great. I, I feel bad for him, man, because like he is he is spectacular and and he he cooks Denver every single time, and loses to Denver every single time. So it's it's tough. So is what it is. Um, but I'm taking them out. I'm taking the Spurs and the Rockets out. I've got 12 teams in my four tiers, and the we'll start at the bottom. And, and I think this is the pie in the sky tier. It's mostly going to go by standings, but I do think that there's some uh, rhyme and reason to it. This is the pie in the sky tier where the Lakers deserve to be in this tier. I'm going to just say that up front right here. They do not deserve to be in a higher tier than this. They are still in the Pelicans, Jazz, and Thunder tier where any of those teams can really talk themselves into it. Like if Zion comes back, if maybe maybe not the Jazz, maybe I'm, maybe I'm pie in the sky for really including them, but uh, Walker, Kessler for, for Walker Kessler for DPOY. I mean, I'm, I'm good with it. So, uh, and then uh, the thunder with, with Shay, like obviously he could be the best player in a series. Just, I guess just about anybody. So you could talk yourself into any of those teams, but I can't really talk myself into them being in a tier higher than this. Do you agree? 
The so for the Jazz and the Thunder for sure the Thunder are coming they're just not they're not there yet. Uh, the Lakers and Pelicans are tough because we've seen with the Pelicans specifically they were the second or third best team in the West before Zion got hurt like entering the new year. But at this point, fewer than ten games to play, we don't know if he's coming back. I'd bet against it at this point, and so I think it's fair to put him like you need to know that Zion is coming back, which we have not heard. The Lakers are more complicated. I would probably just nudge them up a tier because of how well they've navigated the post-trade deadline without ever being healthy. The defense has been so much better. There's actual depth to this roster. There's a rhyme and reason to how they play. And I think something that um, we didn't take into account enough because there was so much going on in that trade, even though it was one of the most obvious benefits of the trade, is just removing Russell Westbrook from the rotation. And that's not to say he was the only problem in Los Angeles. Uh, The front office was the main problem in Los Angeles. But removing him allowed the rotation to make so much more sense, even when it wasn't at full strength. And so if you add LeBron to this and the Lakers did say they expect him back this season, I probably, I wouldn't bump them past tier three, but I do think that they are knowing what we know about the thunder, the jazz, the Pelicans, and then what we've seen from the Lakers post trade deadline. I think if, if you believe that LeBron is going to be available for the play-in, I'd probably just bump them up uh, to tier three it would be the only disagreement I have here. Yeah, I mean, it's it's probably fair. And especially when you've got an all-star caliber player like Austin Reeves coming off the bench, like you gotta do it. Like you, you gotta do it. So I understand. Yeah, I've, I mean, man, he's been incredible. But that's like another guy who like why wasn't he really playing more to begin with in LA? Um, I think he was banged up this year too. They dealt with a lot of injuries, but yeah, I don't the it's a tall ass to say I think a lot of people would have well if LeBron comes back, the Lakers should probably be on the level of like tier two. And I don't, without having to sample these guys together and availability is part of the equation, this team is just inherently fragile. When you look at not just LeBron and AD, but even D'Lo always seems like he's he's dealing with something. So um, again, I would put them in tier three and they're not, there's so many, you could say this about so many teams, they're not a team that I'd want to draw in the first round. Like I don't want to go through the entire season, have the number one seed, and then my reward is facing what could be a healthy LeBron James, Anthony Davis on the Lakers. Uh, but I do think that they're, I also feel like the more people who skew optimistic or maybe too optimistic as to what they're actually capable of when they're at full strength right now. Some Nuggets fans feel the way that you do. And some Nuggets fans just want the smoke. They, they want retribution for 2020 and in the bubble year. And they want to stick it to a franchise that it, that is low at, at this point. So I, and I can understand that for sure, but it, it is a, it is a split decision in Nuggets land, I will say. Um, but Tier three, this is my, it's a weird year tier where I've only got the Timberwolves and Mavericks in here. I could definitely put the Lakers up in this tier. The Timberwolves, Cats coming back uh, tomorrow. That's that's kind of interesting. It's a different wrinkle than I would have ever expected. But with the way that Rudy Gobert is now playing right now and with the way Nas Reed has played all season, it is just weird to think about what their team's going to look like with, with, that, with that trio of bigs. But uh, they're they're a weird one, and then Dallas, of course, like with Kyrie and Luca. I have no, I mean, they they don't have any defense to really do anything. But if they come up with the right matchup to score against any team, then maybe they get it done. But even against a team like the Nuggets, where the Nuggets would probably struggle to stop Luca, I, I just like I can't get past the fact that they wouldn't stop Jokic at all. No, they have like if people are worried about Denver's defense, they have no hope for Dallas's defense. And so I would agree both these teams belong here. Minnesota's been interesting. They were really catching on before the trade deadline, and I wasn't a big supporter of the D trade. 
Mike Conley has helped the chemistry with Rudy Gobert. But the big thing, Carly Town's a great basketball player. In theory, should help them. Uh, and it's good to know that Anthony Edwards isn't supposed to miss a bunch of time. But, like, the offense was objectively terrible when those three played together before um, Towns' injury. And they're not going to – it's not like they've had a ton of practice time together since. They're just going to be trying to integrate him on the fly. And a lot of their success has just come now, like, with some of the one big lineups. And so how does this – and also because Kyle Anderson has just been probably, like, the second-best free agency pickup of the offseason, how does he fit in? to a rotation that now is going to be playing dual bigs more, because if you're not, then you're just like, you've allocated all this asset equity and money to something that you're trying to stagger uh, for so long. I think they're in the right tier. Like there's like, they definitely have a higher end outcome. There's, but there's also that combustibility of, you could just see them losing in the play in. I will say this obviously becomes a spoiler for, I'm sure you have them the next year. I would have the Grizzlies down here. Mm. Uh, I wouldn't put them in tier four, but I'm just notoriously low on the Grizzlies. This isn't a, John Morant thing. This is a, this team has very discernible offensive flaws. They have for quite some time. And their big grand solution to that was getting Luke Kennard. And yes, he fills the functional shooting void, uh, but he doesn't shoot with absurd volume. It's nudged up since he's come to Memphis, but he's not taking like 10 attempts per 36 minutes. And they need someone else other than John Morant plus Desmond Bain. And this progression from Jaron Jackson jr. To create in the half court. I know Tyus Jones has been like an all NBA player whenever he's starting. Do you trust that? Is he going to hit pull up threes off the dribble threes in the playoffs? My guess would be probably not. And now so much of your identity is one getting out in transition, which we've shown that it can translate, but like they ran into some trouble when they weren't able to get out in transition last year. But two, you're supposed to be generating all these second chance opportunities, which you really can't do at a high clip right now because Steven Adams is injured. And it doesn't sound like he's going to be back before the playoffs at least. And I just, I don't, I inherently don't trust them. And I think it was a massive failure for them not to be more aggressive at the trade deadline when they had the assets to do so. They, so they have like six healthy players right now that I think you absolutely trust to be on the court in a playoff series. And even some of them are going to like Luke Kennard being one of them. That is someone that defenses are going to target and they have been targeting since he's been in Memphis. And so I'm not a big believer in them. Uh, on our podcast, we went through their potential first round matchups and I think I picked them to lose in every single one. Um, I think I would pick them to beat the Mavericks. That's like the only team in the first row. Like I'd probably pick them to lose to the Timberwolves at this point. I picked them to lose against the Lakers. So I might be wrong about them. I, I fully recognize that, but this is a team that it's not just discernible flaws. They're, they're longstanding discernible flaws on the offensive end. And they've just decided like, no, like, we're going to be on this gradual timeline. And that just doesn't make sense to me. I'm with you on it. I, I think the the Grizzlies are tough. I, I currently have them in tier two, uh, the, the this could maybe happen kind of tier, but I I think that was more of a nod to their seeding rather than what I actually believe will happen. Uh, not having Brandon Clark, which I do think exacerbates the problem that you, that you talked about yeah, where for sure. they could have gotten OG Ananobi, and if they decided, now we're good, we have Brandon Clark as, as kind of a depth piece, then that's that's probably the wrong thing. And obviously it hurts that he tore his Achilles. Like that's, that is a, a massive, massive blow for some of their best lineups, some of their best combinations. So it's tough. It, it, is, a, it is very, very tough, but they are going to be a team that uh, they're going to have a lot to prove and they're not going to be in the best position to do it. Uh, I, I have the Clippers, the Warriors, the Grizzlies, and the Kings in this particular tier I could not go higher with the Kings, despite the fact that I, I kind of wanted to. 
Uh, and I couldn't really go higher with the Warriors, and I don't really think I need to. Like, I, I just don't think that they've shown anything. And a lot of that is going to come back to what Andrew Wiggins looks like if and when he does come back. But, I, I mean, that's like they just haven't built any habits at all. Yeah, they they and the Clippers are inherently placed it tough. I think you probably put them in the right spot. It might overrate them a little bit, but their top-end outcome is Tier 1. I think both the Warriors and Clippers still have that ceiling. With the Warriors, the Andrew Wiggins questions of whether he's going to come back matters. But we also have to be like, well, how good is he going to be? He wasn't great following whatever. Do you have a hip injury or whatever it was? Um, he didn't really look the same after that. And so like that really harshes a defense that was already not great this year, despite I think Draymond has had a largely underrated defensive campaign. There's just not a left talent around him. And if Gary Payton the second isn't going to play, you know, you got rid of James Wiseman for him. So that, you know, getting rid of James Wiseman probably helped your defense by default, but you're just awfully shallow when it comes to defensive bodies, especially when you need to go up against some of these bigger wings. And that's just going to be hugely problematic for them. So yes, yeah, Steph could catch fire. We, we've seen what Clay can do this year. Dante DiVincenzo has been a great pickup for them. Um, I still think they have that ceiling, but the odds of them reaching it just feels so slim. I struggle more with the Clippers for some reason. Um, Kawhi has just been, he's probably going to make an all NBA team at this point, depending on how people are going to just wait the total number of minutes played or games played. Um, he's been spectacular. Not a lot of their rotations make sense. And they were, they were crescendoing leading into the trade deadline. And then they decided to throw this chaos grenade into it by, you know, I got the logic of all the trades they made, but then you add Russell Westbrook to it and he's been better. The rim pressures actually helped them, but I still feel like there's some awkwardness when they're trying to figure out who closes games. And it feels like Batum and Terrence Mann are going to be inevitably just underutilized for them. And I guess, so it's not even about everyone points to their availability. Like Kawhi has been available since December. He hasn't played both ends of back-to-backs. Like that's, that's a case for a lot of guys at this point. It's like the availability doesn't bother me. It's there's more variance to how they're playing now to where I definitely trust their, their offense less. And just like the Russell Westbrook factor is he might. Yeah. Okay. He might win you a game for every three that he costs you. And like, that's just the, the price that you invariably pay with him. And I do think you have the Kings in the right spot. I will say, I don't think they belong in tier one. And I would have liked to have seen them been more aggressive of getting like, yeah, Kessler Edwards has been fine for them. But like if they could have gotten like a Matisse Thibel or a Josh Richardson at the trade deadline, their defense is smart. They cover a lot of the low hanging fruit. They crash the glass. Well, especially when Sabonis is on the court, um, they limit their fouling. A big thing is because their offense is so good. We mentioned this with the nuggets. They're able to get their defense set, but what they do a really good job of uh, against is like, they have opponents going deep into their offensive shot clock. Uh, I think it's only the heat have a larger share of their opponent shots coming inside seven seconds of the shot clock. That's a big deal. And so if they just had a little bit more talent, whether it was an improved backup five rotation, even though um, Chemeze Metu and Trey Lyles have helped hold down the fort recently, but just like a slightly better wing, someone better than Kessler Edwards doesn't need to be OG Ananobi and Raquel Bridges, but like somewhere in between a Josh Richardson, maybe even a Jay Crowder. Uh, I think they would be a lot more dangerous, but I do think, We've seen fan bases, and I think the Lakers fan base, this is, I have no evidence this, but they seem to be the champions of, well, if only we get the Kings in the first round, it's not going to be that easy to beat the Kings. Like, it's just not going to be that easy. So I think you have them in the exact right spot. Yeah, we'll see. We'll see what they ultimately do. It could be a situation where they falter in the first round because of that defense. I just looked it up. They have the 28th ranked half-court defense, the Kings do. And that, I mean, that's obviously really, really tough. That's, 
I mean, the only teams that are below them on that spectrum are San Antonio and Houston. So I will say they get, they, they have like one of the best defensive shot profiles though. And they've just been getting, I I know they're wide open. They've been getting slaughtered from mid range, I believe. And so that might hold up and you're going to go up against Phoenix. Like, yeah, okay. That's, you're going to get like, you're going to get absolutely annihilated in the playoffs by that. But I think they don't have a much higher defensive ceiling. I just think they're more fundamentally sound on that end than a lot of the numbers show at the moment. Do you think that the Warriors can push for tier one? Like, I mean, I know that they could still win a championship, but I just, I can't really get behind it. I I just, I, every every time somebody tries to talk me into it, I'm like, but they've won. They haven't even won double digit games on the road. Like, what are we doing? I don't know. I, you can't put them in tier one. If they had ripped off, we've all been waiting for them to rip off that stretch of like 20 games where they just look like, what Milwaukee did once Chris Middleton came back and they're just like yeah. 22 and three or whatever it is since then. Um, the Warriors have never had that. And it's even since Steph has come back, like we've seen the road stuff come back to bite them. And so could they win a championship? Yes. I, if you want to give them, if you're putting them in tier one, it's just, they have Steph Draymond and clay. They won the championship last year and we're going to really wait benefit of the doubt here. I just don't, this season specifically, they have not earned the benefit of the doubt in any regard. Yeah, it's too bad. I mean, well, not too bad for me, but is what it is. Uh, tier one, I've got the Suns and the Nuggets in here. I wanted to put the Suns in a different tier because I, I, but I can't because they have Kevin Durant. And because if Kevin Durant comes back and you already have Devin Booker and Chris Paul and DeAndre Ayton in a situation where they've already given a team like the Nuggets issues. If, if the Suns are a team that you could realistic, realistically pick against every single team in the entire Western Conference, then I think they have to be in tier one. And the Nuggets are obvious. Like, I think that the Nuggets should obviously be in tier one because they are the only team that has really separated themselves in this conversation throughout the entire year, despite the fact that they've gone through their own lulls, their, their own ups and downs on the defensive end, obviously, that we've talked about. But in the end, the Nuggets probably still have the best player in the conference, and that matters. Yeah, I think this is right, too. We haven't seen enough of like how KD fits with Phoenix, but he fits – everywhere and i think the big difference maker here well two of them is that the sun said he'd be playing right now if this were the playoffs and so like this isn't a matter of oh will he even be available when the playoffs come and we watched him just come back from an achilles and still be a top five player in the league and so that combined with the scalability of his offense and the fact that i think this is underrated him playing alongside devin booker is actually just so much easier than him playing alongside james harden or kyrie irving because devin booker is when you talk about scalable perimeter superstars in the nba i think the three names that should come up first are steph kd and devin booker and now the suns just have two of those guys floating around on the perimeter for them and so their offense is going to be terrifying do they have enough defensive depth i think kd's been good on that end this year i'd like to see them go small with him at the five a little bit ayton is like might be the most important defender in the nba right now because the the suns decided he could anchor a defense without mikhail bridges and it's can you get enough minutes offensively from Torrey Craig and Josh Okogie to justify playing them high leverage uh, ticks against what are, you know, going to be really good teams in the playoffs. So I think they're in the right tier, even though we haven't seen enough of them because they have just two of the best offensive players in the league who are not just like great offensive players. They're great offensive players who are able to play off everybody else. And in the larger context of offensive ecosystems, Denver would probably have KCP guard, Devin Booker and Aaron Gordon, Aaron Gordon guard KD for obvious reasons. Uh, they'd probably have Michael Porter on Josh Okogie or Torrey Craig, but I honestly feel okay 
about Michael Porter switching off. I mean, nobody can feel great about anybody switching on to KD, but like the one thing that Michael Porter does really well is he's big and he's tall and he can contest as, especially for guys that want to pull up and KD's just going to want to pull up a lot of the time. So I don't think that it's going to be a tire fire if, if those two teams match up. And then like, I don't think they're going to play Michael Porter off the floor in a lot of the ways that they played in 2021, where Michael Porter admittedly hurt his back while tripping over Faka Cabazzo in game one of that playoff series. So that is a potential issue there, but I, I think that's probably a pivot point that goes Denver's way more than a lot of people realize nationally. So it's going to be interesting to see how those two teams match up. If, if you had to pick it, Suns or Nuggets in, in a seven game series where Denver has home court, what would you pick? I go Denver in seven. And like you meant, like they've been so good at home all year. I know having rest days in between might not give them as much of a home court advantage, but we have to go with the larger sample here. The team that has just more continuity as well. And it's just like the West is a mess right now. I think you have the two right teams at the top, but at this point, one, the Nuggets were my title pick. So the stubbornness in me is just going to default to the Nuggets anyway. (laughs) But it's why wouldn't we just go with, you know, are we really going to read so much into like sort of this infinitesimal post all-star break stretch? when they've just been one of the two best teams in the league for the entire year. And so I'm, I'm definitely going to default to that. That would be though, probably one of the more, there's a lot of fascinating chess matches that could take place in the Western conference. That would be one of the more intriguing ones though, for sure. I still, I think I would pick that too. It's going to be a war though, though, like having to defend home court in a game seven against KD and Devin Booker is scary. It's, it's a scary, scary thing for a team like Denver and for Nuggets fans that, that want to taste that, uh, success so so badly so it'll be really cool if it were able to happen if they were able to get to the finals against whether it's the Celtics the Bucks or the Sixers because I think that's probably the three teams that you that you handicapped there would you pick the Nuggets over any of those teams so my preseason prediction was Nuggets over Bucks in the finals and it's ironic that I feel the least good about them beating the Bucks of any of the other three teams I feel pretty good about them beating Philly I guess Boston's interesting because they have just so many perimeter players that can make life hell on the nuggets, but there's too much variability, like self-inflicted variability in the Celtics offense where they go through these turnover stretches or they're just not getting to the rim at all. Or Jason Tatum's been shooting like sub 30% on off the dribble jumpers all year at this point. And so, yes, it would be, they don't necessarily have the best defensive personnel to go up against them, but there's just been so much variance in their performances um, that I look at the Bucks and they're just this machine. And especially defensively, like if there's going to be a team that I think slows down Denver's offense, the Bucks feel like they have the personnel that would be better equipped to do that. And again, I think people might pick Boston there as well. Um, I get it on paper, but in practice, based on how the teams play, I would be most worried about Milwaukee. It's interesting because Nuggets fans, I think, feel the best about a Milwaukee matchup because they feel like they can slow down the bucks at least a little bit in the half court because they're not going to like, if Jokic is going to have to space out to Brooke Lopez, then that is what it is. And and he can do that. But Aaron Gordon feels like a pretty good matchup against Giannis, whether MPJ can match up with Chris Middleton or not remains and, to be seen. But I think Denver, and that's the difference by the way, yeah. is that the half court concerns for the bucks, they're fourth in half-court offense since Chris Middleton came back. And so, like, the concerns about their half-court offense are fair, but, like, he's just, like, this huge – like, you have Drew and Giannis and Chris Middleton. It's just the math somehow starts to not work out because all of a sudden you have these three guys and a ton of space within which that they could work. Yeah. 
And I do think that Jamal would really struggle with that Drew matchup. That would be that would be a tough one when it comes to having to both both defend him and score against him. That would be one where if those two matched up in a playoff series, that would be that would be pretty interesting. But uh, either way, uh, Dan, you've been fantastic on the show. I really appreciate all the insight on everything with regard to the Nuggets and the title race. Uh, thank you so much for hopping in and thank you so much for uh, being so gracious with your time. Where can the people find your work and is, are you, are you working on anything right now that, that you want people to check out? Uh, I'm always working on projects for Bleacher Reports. They can check me out there. Twitter handles on the screen at Dan Valley. And uh, check out the Hardwood Knox podcast if you like unserious, seriously unserious coverage of the entire NBA at large. I love it. Michael, hit that outro music. Uh, folks, that is going to do it for this episode of Pickaxe and Roll, brought to you by our good friends over at Tickle Sports. Thank you, Dan, for hopping in. Thank you, all of you, for hopping on and making sure to have the comment section popping. Really appreciate everybody. Got a lot of compliments here. Uh, Richard says thanks, Dan. Astrid says thanks, Dan. Freddie says great pod. A lot of great stuff here. You guys are great. Uh, really appreciate all the love and support on the show as it has moved over to YouTube. Been a lot of fun. Been a lot of fun to do this. Thank you so much, everybody, for tuning in. We'll be back tomorrow to recap the Washington Wizards game. Should be fun. Thanks, guys. <laughs>